Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. The New England Journal of Medicine recently published a series of articles looking at artificial intelligence in medicine. AI's potential to promote healthcare outcomes is dizzying. My guest today is on the forefront of AI. We will discuss her career as one of our nation's leading mathematicians and her current position, which may impact us all. Next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Kristen Water. Dr. Water is a mathematician and cryptographer. She is a contributing author of Lessons Learned, Stories from Women Leaders in STEM. Kristen Water, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. We're thrilled to have you. So before we start to discuss the book Lessons Learned, I'm interested in your career. Can you please describe your path as a in the field of mathematics and cryptography? Sure. I started out um, actually as a young person, uh, very, very young age, doing math story problems uh, with my dad, you know, in the car when we were traveling and things like that. And I really always just loved math and uh, loved math in school. And I was just really lucky to have teachers who let me work independently and work ahead. Um, so I ended up um, you know, many grades ahead in math in school. And I, I graduated from high school when I was 15 and uh, went to the University of Chicago, which happens to have an outstanding, you know, mathematics department and also welcomes young people, young students. So it was a really perfect place for me to continue my math education. And um, I was very lucky to uh, just continue at University of Chicago for my graduate work for my PhD and um, so that's how I got my training, my background in mathematics. And University of Chicago is a very, very theoretical place. Um, and so didn't even have an engineering school. So um, it's kind of funny to look back on that now, given that I've spent most of my career in industry and working with computer scientists and engineers and even, you know, healthcare practitioners and um researchers in, you know, uh, bioinformatics and things like that. So it's, it's really been quite, um, you know, a, a long path from, from that point. Um, so I can, I could talk a little bit more about that if, um, if appropriate. A ab absolutely. Um, go, go right ahead. So uh, from the University of Chicago, I actually went to the University of Michigan uh, as a mathematics professor. I was an assistant professor there in the late nineties uh, and I was really inspired by all of the engineers that I met in the engineering school at Michigan. I started a course, I created a course on coding theory and cryptography that was intended for math students, but a lot of engineering students came over um, uh, from their uh, graduate uh, program to take the course. And that's how I really got connected with the world of applications of mathematics. And that was a very exciting time for error correcting codes. That's when Qualcomm was being founded, um, a company based on um, error correction techniques, the CDMA technologies and the new chips. And uh, so there was a lot going on in the world. And I actually got recruited to Microsoft Research based on 
the syllabus um, for my course on cryptography and coding theory. And uh, so I was very lucky to go there at a time when they wanted to expand um, their encryption capabilities to include elliptic curve cryptography, which was uh, one of my specialties. And so um, I went to Microsoft Research to work uh, on cryptography and, and joined, joined the cryptography group there. Uh, so that was my first major transition, kind of moving from uh, the mathematics research world into the computer science research world. And so now here we are like 25 years later, and I always like to say I'm a, I'm a mathematician uh, masquerading as a computer scientist. That's been <laughs> my reality. <laughs> um, it's with a little fear and hesitation that I ask this, this next uh, question. Is it possible for you to explain to me, me being the limiting factor, uh, elliptic uh, cryptology? Sure, elliptic curve cryptography. Um, so I think the the first thing um, to just think about is, you know, what is cryptography? What is public key cryptography? So cryptography is the science of keeping secrets, but it's actually today a whole set of tools that allows us not just to assure confidentiality of data, but also authenticity of data. So um, like digital signatures are one of our primary tools uh, so that you know messages or a content can be signed and it can be checked that the content actually originated from where you um, think it, it came from. And so it can be also even combined with creating secure connections. So you wanna, for example, go online and be able to you know, purchase something um, in a secure browser session. Let's say you wanna buy something you know, from Amazon. Well, not only you'd like to make sure that your credit card is, um, you know, it not the credit card number is not stolen during your transaction, but you'd also like to make sure that you're actually buying something from Amazon rather than from somebody else, you know, giving your money, your money to somebody else and not getting anything in return. So these are the tools for cryptography. And then the modern era of cryptography, which is about the last 50 years, roughly, public key cryptography is what us, allows us to operate online, you know, basically enabling e-commerce today, where we publicly exchange information. We don't have to have like secretly met with somebody in some back room and handed over, you know, some keys that we, we share. We can actually exchange information publicly. And based on that and some hard mathematical problems, we can assure the security of our protocols. Now, elliptic curve cryptography came around actually in the 1980s, and it was really beautiful for mathematicians because people like me that worked in, you know, number theory and algebraic geometry all of a sudden had, you know, something fun to work on to apply our, you know, knowledge and skills. And it just happens to be a more efficient way of doing a public key um, crypto protocols, uh, more efficient than the existing um, RSA-based protocols, which were based on the hardness of factoring uh, large numbers. Uh, so you can see RSA is clearly related to number theory. You have large numbers, like can you factor them into their prime factors? Elliptic curve cryptography, um, the question is a little different. It's um, elliptic curves are, you can think of a curve as being, you know, in the plane, you know, something that you could picture as a curve. Um, but elliptic curves are special because they actually have what we call a group operation, which means you can take two points on the curve and you can add them together. And that group operation is the foundation for elliptic curve crypto systems. You have to be able to operate on uh, encode data as, as mess messages as um, 
points on elliptic curves and then operate on them in order to do um, encryption and decryption. And so the hard problem there is, is if you have a random point on an elliptic curve, can you determine which multiple it was of the base point? And that's called the elliptic curve discrete logarithm problem. And there you've got my mini version of a whole course on elliptic curve cryptography. Well, thank you. I I, I appreciate that. Let's let's shift to uh, your chapter in the the book Lessons Learned Stories uh, from Women Leaders in STEM. Can you tell me a little bit about how you became interested in that book and how you came to write a chapter? Oh well, yes. Um, so I'm extremely um, proud and pleased of this book because um, in in my mo almost all the time that I've spent in my professional career has been in, an, in a very, very male dominated uh, workplace, especially uh, research, you know, in the tech industry. And I've been fortunate to be in, in leadership and I've often been kind of the only woman in the room. I was actually, you know, very influenced by, by Sheryl Sandberg's book, you know, Lean In, um, you know, more than 15 years ago. And it was just so inspiring to, um, you know, kind of feel like you're not alone, you know, to read stories from other women that make you realize, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not crazy. Like this is actually what's happening, you know? And so, um, and to get that kind of positive encouragement. And so I feel that these types of books are so important. Um, the lessons learned is obviously, you know, quite different than Cheryl's book because it's a wide range of, of women um, professionals in various um ages and parts of, of STEM. Um, but the, the, the stories are so interesting. It was very inspiring for me to read chapters by the other women in the book as well. And what I hope it can do is to help, especially young people trying to go into the field um, to realize you know, what some of the challenges have been, how some of these challenges can be surmounted, and most importantly, how we can work together to make the work environment you know, a better place for everyone, not, not just women. Dr. Lahr, you've been the president of the Association for Women in Mathematics. Can you tell me about this association? Sure. So I'm very proud of AWM, Association for Women in Mathematics. It's a um, more than 50-year-old professional society, um, started in the 1970s um, by a group of women leaders in mathematics um, you know, who really wanted to improve the kind of working conditions and access and recognition, um, and recognition of the women and the importance of the work of women in mathematics. Um, I actually benefited from the AWM, the Association for Women in Math, when I was a, um, a, a postdoc, I, I was looking for a job and they, they sponsor um, a workshop It was started more than 40 years ago. Um, to bring students to the joint math meetings, the big math annual uh, meeting of the math societies. And so that was a way to get funding to go and present my work as a poster and to get you know, my work uh, recognized um, in order to get you know, job interviews and things like that. And then when I was um, you know, an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, I actually got um, a fellowship to go to France for um, a couple of months to work with one of the most famous mathematicians of the 20th century, Jean-Pierre Serre. And um, so he had to actually write me a little letter in order for me to get this fellowship. But I went and I worked with him on a daily basis and published 
several papers um, where he wrote appendices for these papers, and he really helped support my career after that. So you can see from these two examples, like concrete ways that over the last, you know, four or five decades, AWM has really worked to help build the pipeline of women going into the mathematical profession. Um, and when I came um, into the leadership of AWM, it was with a very specific purpose in mind. I wanted to expand the reach of activities that we supported to include women at a later stage of their professional career, when they're already professors or tenured professors. And so it was very important to me to um, start the uh, process of, um, you know, supporting women at a senior level. You've spoken about early in your career when you, that so much of the field of mathematics was, was male dominated. Uh, do you feel that that's still the case? Uh, yes, unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that one of the things that um, you, we've been able to do, uh, especially in, in mathematics, is to, um, you know, support the growth of um, positions for women and the percentage of women at, at uh, research universities uh, that get, you know, funding for their work. But we're still, I'm not up to date on the exact statistics, but about five years ago, we were still at the point where if you looked at, um, you know, the top research institutions in the in the United States, you would find about, you know, between five and 10% of the faculty are women. So that's still very, very small. Now we're, we're trying to make progress on that, um, but, what that means, like the phenomenon of being in a severe minority like that means that um, there's all kinds of, you know, um, uh, things that happen where, first of all, you can be seen, you and your work can be seen as representative for of, of, of all women, you know, and, and so that can be problematic. Um, and just the simplest things like even within within meetings and discussions, not being able to get your voice heard. Uh, either not, they're not being spaced to talk or you're not having the confidence to speak up or when you do talk that you, what you're what you say is ignored those kind of phenomena that happen in general for um underrepresented minorities and i've um came across early on uh some some research that showed that that minority phenomenon kind of disappears once you get to about, you know, 30 some odd percent. So if about a third. So if you think about it, like if you're one in three people in a conversation, um, you're much less kind of min minoritized than if you're one in 10. Mm. And so I've always used that kind of one third um, as, a, as a goal. So when I gone around and visited uh, math departments, especially in my capacity when I was uh, president of AWM, I'd always like to kind of ask the chair of the department, you know, what what percentage of your faculty are women? And, you know, often they didn't even know. Often I knew better than they did, but it certainly was never even close to a third. And so I always just kind of try to talk up the idea of having that as a goal. You know, why don't we try to get to a third? It's not the same as getting to 50%. 50% would actually be what we what we would like to get to to achieve equal representation. Um, but a, a third is a good start. So, so I've always pushed for that. But um, unfortunately, at least in mathematics, we're still very far from that in the in the field of research mathematics. And is that true both in private industry and in 
academics or does that vary? Uh, no, that's certainly true in industry as well. So um, the Nita Borg Institute has done a good job of collecting statistics and also creating training materials um, for professionals um, in the tech world and um, to address issues facing you know, minorities and generally underrepresented groups, but especially women. And again, my statistics might be a little bit out of date, but about five years ago or so, um, the percentage of women in, in the kind of tech roles um, that, that I'm in, certainly in research, was it hovers around it hovered around 15%. So I hope, you know, Cheryl Sandberg has uh, also set some, some impressive goals, and uh, I hope we're making progress there. I haven't checked on recently on the statistics, though. Well, speaking of, of Cheryl Sandberg, that, that makes many of us think of, of Facebook and, and Meta. And, and you are uh, now the director of, of Fair Labs North America at Meta, uh, one of the largest AI research labs in the world. So I'm very interested in, in how you spend your days and how, how you got there. Um, I think you have a job that many of us would feel is just fascinating. Yeah, well, I love my job. I feel very lucky um, to be doing what I'm doing. Um, and as I said, you know, looking at where I started, it wasn't at all obvious that I would would end up here. I was uh, fascinated by theoretical mathematics, and now here I end up in a very applied um, setting um, uh, where mathematics is being applied to the real world. So I really, I really feel fortunate. Um, so I was at Microsoft Research for um, 22 years. And um, one of the transitions that I went through while I was there was, um, you know, I became the manager of the cryptography and privacy research team in 2008. And I actually led that group for almost uh, um, 13 years, roughly. Uh, and I started out working mostly on the kind of um, public key building blocks that I described earlier, things like elliptic curve cryptography, and then um, proposing um, a new post-quantum crypto system based on isogeny-based cryptography and a lot of number theoretic things. But then um, around the time uh, that I took over the management of the group in 2008, I really started to work on actually using cryptographic technologies to protect privacy. And I was particularly interested in health privacy and genomic privacy. And so started showing what kinds of computations you could do on health data. So, you know, electronic medical records, uh, working with some of um, the uh, collaborators that, that were more knowledgeable in the, in the field of medicine and, and working with EMRs and showing the, the different type of compute, like, you know, predicting, you know, your likelihood of having a heart attack based on, you know, some of your, your um, measured phys physiological data or, you know, a, a lot of different types of compute. And I very quickly came into, you know, doing compute, which was models, which are like basic um, AI models. And so, and this is more than 10 years ago. So AI was not nearly as advanced as it is today, but um, so very quickly became fascinated with um, the power of AI and how you could use it um, in society. And so, you know, the applications in the medical profession seemed, you know, very inspiring. And I was really happy to be able to combine, you know, my expertise working on keeping data private and secure 
with being able to enable, you know, com compute on this data. So um, that led me and um, to kind of build a team and create this whole field of what I now call private AI. And working in AI for about 10 years, I was able to, you know, I was in a position where um, I was really inspired to, to keep working in AI because I felt like it was going to change the world. And I really feel like it is changing the world faster, faster than we may be prepared for. But um, so when the opportunity came to go to Meta to lead um, first West Coast and now North, North American labs for, for, for Meta AI, um, I, I just thought that was really a opportunity not to be missed. So I kind of jumped on it. Well, you, you mentioned, and we hear a lot of people concerned about how AI might get out of hand, what things may, may happen. And so I've, I'm interested in what excites you about the future with AI, and if we could talk about it from the, the healthcare or medical field, I would, I would be, be grateful. And also what scares you? Sounds good. Yeah. So I think it's good to start with just like a basic grounding. What I think happens is there's a lot of hyperbole in the press. And a lot of times if you're reading something in the press and you're not an expert or you're not a mathematician and there's not very much detail, it's really hard to discern actually what's going on. So um, when I give talks, in fact, at last year I had the opportunity to give um, an invited talk at the annual meeting of the American Ophthalmological Society. I like to just kind of explain AI how it works um, from a common sense perspective. And the mathematics, of course, there's a lot of complicated, beautiful mathematics there, but just the basic idea is, is that um, you know, everything in our world we can uh, represent you know, as data. So like images are just pixels, you know, video is streaming images, you know, electronic medical records are different columns with, you know, numerical entries and information that can be coded. So all the information in the world can be turned into data that's represented numerically. And then once you have this numeric data about a particular situation, Let's say you have a bunch of pictures of cats and dogs, or in the medical profession, you're looking at images of tumors. Let's say, you know, liver tumors is something I've worked on. Then, so now you've got a set of data. And instead of just like a trained, um, you know, medical professional who's got a lot of experience, you know, looking at these images and characterizing, oh, okay, I think this is, you know, this type of tumor, you know, something that I wouldn't be able to do. I have no experience in that. Um, we are able to train mathematical models to look at data and learn from them. And then when you're when it's given a new image, it can use the model that it has trained on the old images to be able to make a prediction. Oh, I think this is a malignant tumor. No, nope, this looks benign. Now, of course, that's not going to be 100% accurate, just like a person looking at the image. It's not going to be 100% accurate. But what it does is it allows, um, you know, for, first of all, for efficiency, because you can throw a lot of machines at doing these tasks, training these models, doing these predictions. Um, and so I think that it can also allow if we work hard enough to make sure that these models um, have good properties, that is, they're high quality and they have good properties with respect to fairness and diversity. For example, not just training them, not just training the models on a segment of the population 
that um, all looks a certain way. For example, you know, only men in their 50s or something like that in, in the US or in um, you know, a high density urban setting, something like that. Instead, you want to think about the data, where is it coming? Are we actually representing patients and people from around the world? Are we looking at different genders? Are we looking at different age groups? Are we, you know, all these different things. And so as you can see from how I'm talking, these are humans that need to be thinking about this. This is not the AI. You know, AI is designed by humans. So we as humans have a lot of work right now to figure out what are the properties that we want these AI systems to have and ensure that they have them. So I think that that's both like the opportunity and also the risk. So to me, the risks are mostly like human risks today. That is humans, you know, misusing uh, powerful models and the same way that humans misuse, you know, weapons and things like that. And so to me, we have a very powerful tool, the mathematics that allows us to take data and build models and make predictions. And, you know, we as humans need to figure out how to responsibly, you know, deploy and use these models. And so I'm just very thrilled to have the opportunity to work at the forefront of this field and to help, you know, encourage people to keep working on the important problems in these directions. Dr. Waters, is our, as our time comes to an end together, I'm interested in what work in your career you're most proud of, research and or leadership. Oh, well, thank you. It's nice to be able to reflect on that. Um, so honestly, I um, would love to give you a, a research answer, but I think I have to honestly say the the first thing, the thing that I'm most proud of is uh, creating this initiative of uh, research networks for, for women. Um, so this started you know, more than 15 years ago with a conference that I co-organized with my colleagues, Rachel Priest and Renata Scheidler, called Women in Numbers to support uh, women in number theory. And what we ended up doing was um, we were just frustrated that we kept going to number theory conferences where we were the only woman or the only woman speaker and so we just said, okay, well, let's just create a conference for ourselves and let's make it collaborative. Let's have um, the more senior people lead, you know, working groups with junior um, students and postdocs and try to, you know, encourage this kind of collaboration, which can be the foundation for a network, you know, collaboration network and mentoring and research and things like that. And it just um, the, it exceeded beyond our wildest dreams. And we had many, many other women in number theory step in and, and lead um, the WIN uh, effort. We've had um, uh, like eight or nine WIN conferences now. We've published many volumes of, of our research articles. And it became the template for research networks uh, for women in mathematics in, in all different areas of mathematics. So. We now have like 25 different networks in different areas. And this was built up over the time, roughly um, around the time to, uh, 2015 to 2017, when I was president of AWM, we got a very large NSF grant to support the formation of these networks. And we've been able to continue to grow and uh, grow these networks and, and support them. So I think that this is you know, by far and away, probably the thing that I'm most most proud of in my career. You know, I could talk about some of the different research results, but I don't think probably anything will have as much impact as as that did. That's so nice. And it's great to to end our time on such a, a high note. 
I can't thank you enough for being on Sound Practice. Kristen Walker, thank you so much. Thank you. It's great, great to be here. My thanks to Dr. Kristen Lauder. May her career inspire and benefit us all. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin went from Kapow.